Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Cathy Pilgrim, the Assistant Director General of the Executive and Public Programs Division here at the Library. And it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce you to our guest speaker, Professor David Vines. As we begin, I acknowledge the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respect to their elders past and present. This is the first lecture in the Winter Fellowships Program, and I congratulate you all for braving the chilly conditions and making such a large and enthusiastic crowd here tonight. I extend a particularly warm welcome to representatives of the Minerals Council of Australia. Through their generous sponsorship, David's 12-week fellowship and tonight's lecture are made possible. The National Library's Fellowship Program continues to benefit from the Council's enthusiasm for promoting research that provides historical, social or contemporary understanding of its activities. Not confined to minerals-related topics, the Fellowship is awarded to researchers whose interests relate to public policy, social research, international relations, resources, industry, the environment or the economy, so quite a wide brief. David is the third fellow generously funded by the Minerals Council. Indeed, libraries and minerals organisations share much common ground. Researchers drill into the catalogue, detect, locate and expose deposits. <laughs> Dig, delve and unearth sources investigate, explore and mine archives and find wealth and value in our precious collection ore. I promise that's the end of the jokes. <laughs> like the Kalgoorlie Boulder gold mine, which is the 12th largest in the world, tonight's topic, Transforming Australia's Economy, Why the 1940s Matter, is a deep one and we are fortunate to have someone of David's academic stature to explain its significance. David's referees commented that he is one of the leading macroeconomic theorists in the world who expresses economic ideas in a way that is both compelling and accessible to non-economists. So tonight we have much to learn but nothing to fear. After graduating from the University of Melbourne, David spent 25 years researching and teaching in the United Kingdom as the Professor of Economics at Oxford University and Fellow in Economics at Balliol College. As a doctoral student in Cambridge, he worked at the Nobel Prize winner, with the Nobel Prize winner James Mead, with whom he published some of the earliest work on inflation targeting. In recent years, David has advised on the Eurozone financial crisis, played a significant role in Australia's presidency of the G20 summit and participated in high-level discussions in Australia's contribution to international cooperation in the post-Trump and post-Brexit world. David has used this fellowship to examine the creation of Australian macroeconomic policymaking during the early 1940s, a genesis that laid the basis for a quarter of a century of rapid, outward-looking economic growth and provided the foundation for the Hawke-Keating reforms of the 1980s. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming David, who has weaved an intriguing macroeconomic tale that will take us via Melbourne, 
Cambridge and Oxford to the intellectual hotbed of Canberra and a wartime meeting of remarkable minds. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Let me begin by acknowledging and celebrating the traditional custodians of this land and paying my respects to the Nyanawal and Yambi people, past and present. Let me also begin by thanking the National Library for hosting me during my time here, and in particular, for, uh, thanking the Minerals Council of Australia for making my time here possible. How did I come to be here? Well, I was an undergraduate at Melbourne uh, studying economics from the Australian viewpoint, and I vividly remember the day studying international economics when I said to myself, I want to go, this is a small place, big on the map, small, I want to go and understand how the rest of the world works before coming back here to make a contribution. Here's me when I'm not in lectures enjoying myself. <laughs> Uh, but I was uh, thinking how to make a contribution and now when I've come after many years to this stage, I've thought that a contribution I could make is thinking about the history of what has happened in Australia uh, using what I've learned uh, in England to do that. When I was in Cambridge, I had the good fortune to work with James Mead, and uh, also uh, to come in contact with his contacts with Keynes. He worked very closely with Keynes. Uh, this naturally led me to working on Keynes, and I've written a couple of books on Keynes with an economic historian, Peter Temin from MIT. In doing this work, I've particularly concentrated on Keynes' pivotal role in the establishment of the International Monetary Fund at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And this is where Australia comes in. Uh, Mead explained Keynes as ideas after Keynes died, sadly in 1946, before being able to write down anything about what's happened, what had happened. Mead got the Nobel Prize for a formidably difficult to understand book, which uh, was mainly full of handwritten mathematics. And it turned to Trevor Swan in Australia, building on his Australian experience to explain what had happened. And I think that Swan uh, is, uh, was able to appreciate what Keynes had done, what had happened at Bretton Woods, because of very particular Australian background and the understanding of the world that he'd come to being in Australia. There'll be five parts to my story uh, Australia in the 20s, the Great Depression, two accounts of things important that happened during the war, and finally a description of Trevor Swan's understanding of how everything fitted together. There'll also be a short epilogue uh, that goes from when Swan did that to the present. The preliminaries uh, are about the extraordinary prosperity of Australia in the late 19th century, built on wool and gold, rapid immigration, and uh, borrowing from abroad. Here's a picture of the exhibition buildings in Melbourne uh, in, uh, 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 where the World Fair was held in, the 1880, in 1880, 
and a picture of Burke Street by Tom Roberts, just showing the celebrated um, activity in Melbourne at that time, a golden age of globalisation for Australia. Uh, Britain dominating Australia's trade. That's where the immigration came, the immigrants came from, and in London was where the gold standard that held it all together was centred. It was believed that the British Empire would hold all this together. The depression which followed in the 1890s had very long-lasting effects, uh, and uh, there, were, there was then World War One and the extraordinary depredations that this caused. And after th that war, there was a slow recovery, but tepid and petering out long before the Great Depression began. By then, Australia was a highly protectionist country. When the gold ran out, those looking for gold in Ballarat had come to Melbourne looking for work and were protectionist in the face of competition from cheap imports made in Manchester and Liverpool. On the other hand, New South Wales was a free trade place. Farmers, still wool, also wheat. Um, in 1927, Prime Minister Bruce formed a committee to examine this protectionism, which was thought to be getting out of hand. It became called the Brigden Committee. And the three key players in this exercise were all Tasmanian. <laughs> Lyndhurst Giblin, who studied mathematics, believe it or not, at King's in Cambridge and knew Keynes well, uh, uh, was important to this story, six years older than Keynes. Uh, he was a remarkable man who'd spent seven years in the gold rush in the Yukon and was seriously injured three times in the First World War. Coop, Douglas Copeland, a New Zealander from 1917, taught in Tasmania, uh, who became the first professor of economics in Melbourne, moving north. And uh, in, in 1930, he brought Giblin up with him, Giblin by then an older man, to become the first research professor of economics in Melbourne. James Brigden, the third person at the bottom uh, of this, was seriously injured in the First World War and studied economics by a series of chances as a wounded soldier in Britain. Uh, he'd been uh, worked and came to Tasmania to work with Giblin and Copeland. And the report became known as the Brigden Report. Uh, they all knew each other well, and this will be significant in what follows. The ideas went like this. Protection uh, of, of imported competing goods meant that uh, they, people producing them could raise their prices. This meant that workers could be paid more, and that was the, we know now, the origins of compulsory wage fixing in, in Australia, um, the Arbitration Commission. The effect of this was to encourage protected industries and to disadvantage farmers and exporters Who's selling, who were selling things on world markets and couldn't be protected and weren't protected. It encouraged immigration and it encouraged borrowing from abroad. There's much discussion in the report and quite a lot of confusion, but the general picture is what I've just described to you. Uh, 
and uh, there was much also understanding that protection could go far. There's fantastic accounts in the, in the uh, papers here in the library of a fantasy written by Brigden about what happens when everybody is protected from everyone else. <laughs> but in this world, there was no macroeconomic policy of it at all. There was just the gold standard. And the gold standard meant that when there was a boom in, in selling exports, um, accounts of the Commonwealth Bank and other, uh, other banks in London, there it is on the right, went up. There's the Bank of England on the left managing the gold standard. And uh, they, they, these Australian banks would lend, let, then lend more at home in Australia. Conversely, when export sales collapsed, the accounts of the Australian banks went, went into deficit and these banks just ceased lending. And that's what happened in the Great Depression. The Scullin government had just come to power. Uh, the Wall Street crash took place in the first week of the government. And by the 1930s, it's an extraordinary story, these prices of Australian exports of wheat and wool had fallen to less than half of their previous value. And soon nearly a third of the workforce were unemployed. There's my picture from library pictures on the left of poverty on the farms and on the right the huge queues of urban unemployed. Scullin invited uh, Niemeyer from the Bank of England to come to Australia to advise and good gold standard discipline, wage cuts, fiscal cuts, and uh, a, a deflation. Um, but the Labor, Labor government was torn apart by the controversy that emerged as a result of this. On the one hand, their own treasurer wanted expansionary policies, which the mighty Commonwealth Bank sitting there in Sydney prevented. On the other hand, Jack Lang in Sydney wanted to default on debt. But of interest to my story is the economists who we've already met. There we are, uh, Giblin, Copeland, Giblin, uh, our friend Giblin, Copeland again, uh, Brigden, and we add one more, Melville, the chief economist of the Commonwealth Bank, who was very much on the economist's sides rather than on the side of his very conservative chairman. What they did was put together a Premier's plan. Uh, let me just say that Mel Melville uh, had come into the Commonwealth Bank at a young age and I had the privilege of meeting him just before he died, which was at the age of 100. Uh, and, and in a way I'll mention in a moment. He joined this group. At the centre of their thinking, were the realities of the collapse of <coughs> the economy because of this collapse in wool and wheat prices. It was Giblin who understood what <coughs> the consequence. This is a very intriguing and important piece of argument by Giblin, and it goes like this. If uh, there's a reduction in export revenue, uh, and here here of, say, a 1,000, then farmers get less well-off and spend less. His idea was that they would spend less all of what they'd lost 
but a third of what they spent would go to imports, so that spending on other people would go down by two-thirds of a thousand on other people in the economy. But they would get less income and they would spend less. Some of that would go to imports and two-thirds of it would go to domestic expenditure and they would get less because of that and so on and so on. And the end result wouldn't be 1,000. It would be multiplied to a bigger number, 3,000. And this is what Keynes got famous for six years later in the general theory, understood in Australia in this, policy, in this particular context. The really interesting thing about these economists is that they wanted to spread the burden. And their way of doing this was not wage cuts and deflation, but it wasn't just inflation of the kind that terrified the bankers. They wanted a mixture devaluation of the currency coupled with the wage cuts that the Arbitration Commission had, had already introduced in order to try and stabilise the price level, not deflation, not inflation, but just in the middle. But very centrally, uh, they want to be able to change the currency, a central idea. Um, nevertheless, none of this is well worked out. And... Uh, they're still, including Melville, uh, arguing for a return to the gold standard. Um, and uh, the, these ideas in Australia were very w well understood um, and <coughs> uh, Copeland was asked to go and give a prestigious set of lectures in Cambridge explaining these ideas. They weren't really Keynesian. But the central part of the story, because they were still not talking about more spending, but the central part of their idea was that the currency should be devalued if there was a difficulty. Uh, as we know, it wasn't just in Australia but everywhere else that the Depression played out. And Australians went to the World Economic Congress, the, the World Economic Conference, the Imperial Economic Conference, that should say, in Ottawa in 1932. And there's uh, Prime Minister Lyons asked Copeland to produce some uh, suggestions about what to say, and here they are in the library, not published, and they're much more sensible than anything else that was tabled at that conference, <laughs> and show Australians' understanding of what to do. They look forward in in an important way to what was done after the war with the setting up of the new international monetary system at that time. The participants also at this conference set about establishing imperial preference, protectionism amongst the empire, what became called empire free trade. Uh, the idea being that there's home producers protected first, like in Australia, then empire producers, and then, roughly speaking, to hell with everybody else, uh, foreign producers last. The, this empire-first protectionism has a really important part to play in the story that I'm going to tell in what follows. That's the 1930s. From then, the Australian economy began to recover, helped in part by the devaluation of the currency, also helped by a recovery in wool and wheat prices. Um, at this time, 
as Australia was recovering of crucial relevance to our story is the publication in 1936 of Keynes's general theory. An understanding of some of the ideas that the Australians were grappling with, <coughs> although a, a very partial understanding. Keynes had been, uh, a, a, the central idea of this book uh, was that exactly that story that I told you earlier, that when incomes fall, spending falls, and this can multiply through the economy. And this means that you have to understand incomes in order to understand spending. But it was only a partial story. Keynes had not understood the Australian currency depreciation story. The Australian economist would have actually achieved more if rather surreally Keynes hadn't written to the Melbourne Herald in 1932, just at the time there was about to be a change, preventing, through his argument, this a further devaluation of the currency. We go now to the third part of my story. So what's that second part? The Australians have a very significant understanding and a policy mix and they're only then beginning to really understand how to put it together with the advice coming from Keynes's general theory. Then comes the war. Uh, Pearl Harbor in December 1941 and the fall of Singapore in 1942 brought the war suddenly close to Canberra, uh, to, uh, to Australia. Uh, Curtin had become prime minister in October 41, and the story of how Curtin, and uh, together with Chifley, instigated a program of post-war reconstruction is a fantastically interesting story, which Stuart McIntyre has written about so much in his book, the, uh, which I have a picture there, Australia's Boldest Experiment. Uh, the Department of Post-War Reconstruction was set up in 1942 with Coombs as its head and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But earlier, at the beginning of the war, uh, we, we uh, have to join our favourite friends again with one more person added. Uh, there we see uh, Giblin by then, a retired and a rather avuncular man. There's a picture of him painted by Dobell in 1945, just a couple of years later. And there, in the middle is Roland Wilson, uh, the star pupil of those Tasmanians who graduated in, in 1924 and uh, went to Oxford and wrote a, on a Rhodes Scholarship and wrote a doctorate about foreign borrowing in Australia and then went off to Chicago and wrote another doctorate about foreign borrowing in Australia and came back to have a formidable career both during the war and ultimately at sec as Secretary of the Treasury. Um, what happened at the beginning of the war was Wilson, already Commonwealth statistician, which he'd become at the age of, of, 40, of 32, extraordinarily young, uh, summoned his mentor, Giblin, to Canberra, now retired, but bring him up to Canberra, along with Melville from the Commonwealth Bank, uh, there on the right, uh, to form the Financial and Economic Committee, giving the first real advice on thinking about economics in economic policy, other than the Premier's plan, which had been an ad hoc story in the 30s in the Depression. At last, there was the beginnings 
of something we would recognise as a central policy-making committee. Uh, <clears throat> Giblin set about working out how to pay for the war uh, and using um, uh, both Wilson and Melville as his sounding board. Soon he'd added Copeland, the old Tasmanian friend again, but in addition, this really bright young man who he brought in to work in the Treasury, who, there we are, right-hand side, Nugget Coombs, he'd been working at the Commonwealth Bank uh, with Melville uh, before being brought into the Treasury and joining this group. So here we have this gang of people, all of whom know each other well, working on how to pay for the war. And Intriguingly, this is what Keynes published a book uh, about at this same time. And there's a very interesting correspondence between Giblin and Keynes about this subject. Giblin, as I said, knew Keynes well, to add to the story, having retired from Melbourne and looking rather avuncular, he'd gone to King's in Cambridge for half a year as a visiting fellow. When he came back to Australia and was working on the same problem as Keynes, there's correspondence between them about this, which is really very interesting. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the, the, this committee advised the government not to put up taxes because there was still a lot of unemployment. So they were beginning to use Keynesian methods of, of thinking to understand how to ensure that the economy could go to full employment, war pressure, and then how to manage the economy once full employment had been reached. And the discussions amongst the committee and uh, continuing with Keynes about how to do this make the first account of using real Keynesian methods of analysis in the pursuit of what we would now sure call full employment. When the spare resources expand, when there's too much demand, make sure that you contract. Uh, how it was to be done was through taxation, possibly compulsory taxation uh, and compulsory loans. There's a whole story about that. Um, uh, and and uh, in addition, rationing, which w became necessary given that these other methods were not enough. And Coombs, already on the way up, it becomes director of rationing. What comes next? for this group of economists is many things, but what I want to focus on in the international story that I'm telling is uh, the outward-looking international aspects of their advice. The problems of financing the war weren't just domestic financial issues, there were international external financing questions. In Britain, these were very severe by the end of 1940, Britain had run out of money. Roosevelt generously responded uh, by, to what had happened by offering Lend-Lease in response to a plaintive letter from Churchill at the end of 1940. Uh, but immediately Congress asked him, what is this Lend-Lease? Is it a gift? No. Is it a loan? No. Will they pay interest? No. Well, what said Congress actually is this? And Roosevelt's answer to this prompt 
was to ask the State Department to find what the British should pay. And the answer was, roughly speaking, the end of empire. Uh, the notorious Clause 7 of the Lend-Lease Agreement contains that crucial uh, sentence at the top of this page. Shall provide against discrimination by one country of the exports of the other country in any market. And you can see immediately why Keynes exploded. He asked Dean Acheson, the Under Secretary of State, whether that meant or the imperial preference that the empire had agreed to in, in Ottawa? And the answer was yes. This was discrimination against US markets, against US producers in the Australian market or wherever else. Um, whereupon Keynes blew up and the, the protest uh, that I described there he saw this as an attack on every possibility of making the world work properly after the Second World War. And this explosion was very quickly what caused Keynes to begin work on his International Monetary Fund proposals and later on to begin work on how the uh, liberalisation of trade could be carried out given that it was being enforced on Britain uh, as a condition for paying for the war. The Australians faced the same story after the fall of Singapore, uh, which had followed on Pearl Harbor very quickly, and the entrance of the Americans into the Pacific War. And what the Australians uh, argued right from the beginning was that the proposals of the Americans to liberalise trade, to roll back imperial preference, to, they saw it, an attack on Australian protectionism, could be contemplated, but only if the world set about to ensure um, uh, that there were, there's a commitment to full employment in all countries. You can see Coombs at work with the publication of the general theory in his mind, which, as I said to you earlier, he regarded as so fundamental. The Australians said, unless the new international monetary system gives us a commitment by those joining it to full employment, it will turn into something pernicious and difficult to deal with for countries like us, just like the gold standard had been. And in those circumstances, trade liberalisation would be something which made things worse and to be feared and battled against. What the Australians did in response to this is a remarkable story. And it draws very much on what, where we've come from before for obvious reasons of historical continuity. The Australians thought, first of all, that there should be this commitment to full employment by all those joining out of uh, the, the new international monetary system, which would in the end become the International Monetary Fund. Uh, this had grown out of Australia's experience of what happened when the world was not like that in the Great Depression. And in meetings in London and in Washington, in the run-up to Bretton Woods, the Australians made a very significant contribution 
to the discussions about this. And there are, uh, in the papers, uh, both in the library and in the National Archives, there are records of tough discussions between Wilson, Roland Wilson, now at work with Coombs in uh, discussing these questions internationally, uh, discussions in which Keynes and Robbins uh, played, Lionel Robbins from London played an important role. Keynes told the Australians that they could never get the Americans to agree to this. Uh, Lionel Robbins, and, and therefore that the Australians would have to trust those that were developing the new IMF, that it would give them what they wanted, even if there wasn't an explicit commitment made in the Articles of Association. Lionel Robbins was much less polite and just said, at least to one of his friends, that he wished these ex-colonials would go away and leave running the world to people who understood. <laughs> the Australians didn't get what they wanted on that, but everyone acknowledged that the discussion of the importance of their being full employment policies played a significant part in the run-up to Bretton Woods. The second thing this, the Australians wanted was pressure on surplus countries. They expected the Americans to be, uh, after all of it, what it had benefited from the war, uh, to be in surplus. And they wanted pressure on such countries to, 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 to be, uh, have their monies confiscated or forced to spend their surpluses uh, in this new international monetary system. This was a central discussion and it was not achieved and uh, it led 25 years later to pressures which finally broke up the Bretton Woods system. The Australians were on the right side, but again pressing for an international system that worked well, even though in this case they, uh, like the first one, didn't get a success in the negotiations of the outcome. Finally and crucially, the Australians called for freedoms for currencies to be moved uh, and not for it to turn into a fixed and immutable exchange rate system like they saw the gold standard had been. And there's a wonderful correspondence between Keynes and Melville, uh, who was also with uh, Wilson and Coombs negotiating in London about this, in which, and I quote, uh, to maintain the incomes of wool producers by greatly uh, increasing the incomes of all other exporters and diminishing the purchasing power of the public generally is something like burning down the house for roast pork. No currency depreciation in Keynes's mind was part of the situation that countries would need to do in these circumstances quite wrong in his understanding of the way his Bretton Woods system uh, was really needing to work. So there we are, the Australians making an important contribution in these international discussions. The Bretton Woods system is established. No one quite understands how it's meant to work. I've suggested that Keynes, both in the 1930s and again at this time in, in, in the discussion of the system, uh, was not clear about what it was that was necessary. I've also said that 
the uh, <coughs> Australians had a clearer understanding than anyone else did of what was necessary. But it still hadn't been worked out. As I said to you, it wasn't until 1952 that James Mead wrote down what was necessary in his uh, uh, piece, which is a complicated book, which won the Nobel Prize. That's many years later. And in the immediate post-war period, the uh, Australian economists were grappling with how to apply these new ideas of an international new international monetary system in their own country. How to fit it all together. I began all this work, my work in this area, uh, in the National Library by looking at papers in the Trevor Swan collected papers in the library, which contained discussions between, mainly between him and Roland Wilson of what to do. Swan is by that, that stage uh, the uh, chief economist in the post-war reconstruction department. He's joined Coombs, having uh, been, and I step backwards to describe a little bit about Swan, graduated in 1940 uh, as first-class honours, but as a part, and university medal, but as a part-time student, an extraordinary achievement, and, and then working mainly in Melbourne uh, but, uh, and disconnected from the others that I've been describing but building an extraordinary econometric model which he applied to the 1930s, which helped him see through all these problems with very great clarity, nearly. By the late 40s, in discussing these issues with Wilson, who was now very nearly the head of the Treasury, our, our favourite friend, uh, Swan uh, depicted straightforward in, uh, incoherence in policy at the time. A large immigration program, big spending for infrastructure, lots of demand, inflation, but no willingness to use the exchange rate as part of the policy mix. How to put it all together? And there's a, a, a very real debate in the Wilson papers and in the Swan papers about not understanding how to conduct policy in these circumstances. And then, and, and here's this, uh, I, I've got slightly behind myself, here, here is one of Swan's th three papers discussing the incoherence of policy uh, written as the chief economist in post-war reconstruction and discussed with others in the Treasury. And then in 1952, there's this rather remarkable paper in the papers, in, in the National Library, eight pages which begin uh, the, these notes, I need my other glasses, the first line, these notes arise out of a con conversation with XYZ in the course of which we decided, and what we decided is a bit of an answer. And XYZ isn't just Roland Wilson, but according to Peter Swan, Trevor's son, it's also Fred Wheeler, who is by then active in these groups of people and, and becomes later Secretary of the Treasury after Wilson. And in this paper, he lines up the whole of the story with a full discussion of what to do. 
if you're trying to achieve full employment and uh, price stability and not have the balance of payments difficulties that have been so central to the story that we've been talking about, and if you've got fiscal policy and wages policy as set by the Arbitration Commission and the exchange rate, or if you're unwilling to use the exchange rate, if you're going to use protection to help you in fixing uh, a uh, excessive imports over exports, then you've got three by three things, and three by three has a solution. And in the remarkable paper, pair of papers that he produces, uh, he then collapses three by three into this two-dimensional diagram. On the horizontal axis there is fiscal policy controlling real expenditure. You remember way back with Giblin, when people get more income, they spend more. When people get less income, they spend less. This Keynesian idea, that's what's along there. Up this axis is the cost ratio, which is a way of thinking about the exchange rate relative to the wage level in those instruments case. When you devalue and the wage doesn't change, then you become more competitive. Your cost ratio improves, and that's what going up means, gets better in this diagram. And if you are unwilling to do it with, with, with the exchange rate, you can use protection. That's uh, where we are. And the story which so many of us who are economists know back to front and inside out is that you can then solve this story for working out what to do with policy. If you want to make sure that you've got full employment, then you can bring that by a lot of domestic expenditure and not many, very many exports less incoming expenditure coming from that way and uh, uh, from exports and more from your domestic expenditure by fiscal policy. Uh, and similarly the other way, lots of exports, you don't need to stimulate the economy much along here. That's getting you to full employment. But you've also got to think about the foreign sector. If you improve the uh, if you increase the expenditure of the economy, then you would need to sell more exports to pay for the imports that you got through doing more expenditure, and that's why that goes like that. And the end result is that you can use this to work out the full situation that you need. Swan was able to achieve this remarkable understanding. It's my story because he's influenced by what Giplin had done in the 1930s about the Depression, what the, they, they, uh, uh, and his multiplier, what they'd argued against Keynes in the 30s and at Bretton Woods about the need for devaluation, how they'd understood the use of policy in the, in the Financial and Economic Committee uh, in, uh, at the beginning of the war, and their a positive approach to uh, ensuring or attempting to push for full employment policies in that uh, international monetary system. And with that background, Swan confronted, as I've said, the position of the Australian economy in these notes. 
And that's what led him to thinking this whole situation through. And as we all now know, this is what James Mead was trying to say in his 300-page book with 80 pages of handwritten algebra. <laughs> it's what we now all teach to our students, and it's central to our understanding of international economics. Now my coda, uh, where does this end? Uh, how do we bring it to back to where we started? Well, you will remember that the uh, <coughs> uh, Lend-Lease and the American proposals for trade liberalisation after the war, which the Australians had said are so damaging unless there's full employment, the Australians, led by Coombs, but it, it, um, in, by this stage, uh, dis discussion in trade policy with both Chifley, shown in that picture at the right, but also in a very complex and not entirely satisfactory way with, F with H.V. Everett uh, as well, uh, to negotiations in London and, and Washington about the establishment of the new international trade organisation that in the end the, became the general agreement on tariffs and trade, the GATT, because way back then, being uncooperative, the um, US wouldn't sign up for the international trade organisation which everybody had been negotiating for. Nevertheless, although Australia played an important part in, in participating in these negotiations, the Australian idea was still that they had a, a central need for protection in the Australian economy to, to encourage development. And to turn this story round to its end, we need to go forward to the Hawke-Keating reforms uh, of the 1980s, in which the outward-looking approach of the Australian economy was put in place. Uh, but the crucial point of my talk is that this macroeconomic framework that Swan had helped Australians understand played a central part in being able to do this. If you're trying to achieve an externally balanced economy not running up external deficit uh, in a way which is not to be managed, and, and internal balance of your economy, we've said you need to have not just domestic policy, but the cost ratio right. What happens if you reduce pro protectionism but don't devalue the exchange rate? The answer is that your cost ratio worsens and if you started off in a good position uh, there, you will just go there into unemployment and external deficit. What was crucial to take this uh, liberalisation argument of Hawke-Keating uh, forward was the ability to devalue the exchange rate. And this had been possible in the Bretton Woods system, but was very difficult to achieve. That's part of a history which we have not time to discuss in detail. It just didn't happen with the exchange rate. And so in the period up until then, all of this had been done by manipulating protectionism. At last, float the rate and the movement in cutting external tariffs 
can be accompanied by currency depreciation, as happened in the, uh, in the early years of the Hawke-Keating administration, without damaging the external cost ratio. And so we have a clear macroeconomic framework of the kind described by Swan as a necessary condition uh, building on the previous experience and floating the exchange rate then makes the liberalisation possible. And in this world post Hawke and Keating, there's come to be a realisation that protection is no longer necessary in order to have higher real incomes and growth. It's, it's um, a, a realisation that taxation policy is a better way of achieving uh, a, a, a redistribution from uh, uh, the export sector towards those in cities and the paying for the development of infrastructure. And this takes us right into a discussion of the minerals tax and that set of issues uh, about how to get an appropriate distribution of income between one part of the economy and the other by tax policy, you no longer think, we no longer think, that protection is the way to do this. And there's no longer a sense that protection is necessary to increase real wages, to encourage migration, to make it possible for capital to flow in. And this liberalisation which happened uh, laid the foundation for the rebalancing of the economy uh, at that time in which the mineral boom at the end of the century has played such an important role. And I think it's fitting that I, having uh, be, my fellowship having been made possible by the Minerals Council, that I come to a point in describing how this liberalisation paved the way for an economy in which this could... Uh, uh, be so important in what's happened. But what has been the feature of the, of the world ever since those early 80s is that through the Asian financial crisis, through the, uh, and, and through the GFC in 2008, and through the reduction in Australia's terms of trade in 2012-13, uh, the movements of the exchange rate, in order to bring about a, an outcome of this kind, has been possible uh, in an economy which no longer relies on protectionism to look after the interests of domestic uh, producers. So we conclude by just asking the rhetorical question at the end, uh, why is it that when I come to Australia, uh, I find an, a, a country in which the uh, move against the rest of the world, inwardness that has distressingly happened in both Britain and the US through populism, uh, has not been anywhere near as evident in Australia. Of course, the Hawke-Keating reforms, the mineral boom, the uh, uh, the uh, uh, integration of the Australian economy with the world in such an important way is fundamental. But what I've been wanting to argue here is that a coherent way of thinking about doing macroeconomic policy has also been part of the story 
in making that outward-looking view possible. Thanks very much. very much, David, for sharing with us your um, deep dive into the National Library's collections. I think uh, we can tell that you clearly enjoyed it yeah. and you got a lot out of it. I'm really grateful for you um, summarising so succinctly Mead's 300-page-odd tome of economic theory and algebra into one presentation slide. So, so that was a great feat. Well, that was Swan's work. <laughs> so, now we have some time for questions. Um, we have a couple of microphones. So if you would like to raise your hand and ask a question, please, we've got plenty of time to do so tonight. There's one yeah. just down. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much, David. Peter Drysdale from the ANU. Thanks very much, David, for a fascinating story. Uh, I wonder if I could challenge you uh, to turn the lessons of this history that you've displayed to us tonight to the current challenges we face, not only in Australia, in the world. Uh, in the Great Depression was characterised by, if I can put it very briefly, huge second round effects that saw the collapse of world trade. And we seem to be threatened by another experience, perhaps not so deep, but quite severe of that similar kind now, after the uh, global financial crisis and the threatened declaration of trade war by the present United States on China and many of the United States allies. Uh, if you were to turn the lessons that you've brought from this history to us into advice to policy makers in Australia today, policy advisers in Australia today, what would the priorities uh, that this history suggests you would recommend to them? Big question. <laughs> uh, not turning inwards. So, of course, I'm distressed at what's happened in my own country, slightly evading the question by by, by describing my other own country in Britain, uh, where uh, in, in the supposed pursuit of benefit through be becoming global Britain, uh, uh, policymakers are turning their backs on the market in Europe, which, Europe, which Brit Britain has spent the last 40 years integrating with. That's a, that's a localised European story of a very big mistake, a misunderstanding, where openness there is not a story of turning your back on those with whom you have integrated so closely over the last 50 years, but of encourage remaining within that group and being part, as Britain always was until recently, of the push within Europe for opening with the rest of the world. For Australia, uh, it's to uh, uh, encourage uh, moves within the Asia-Pacific region to seek for openness in trade as a response to the Americans' attempt to turn global trade into a trade war. And this means uh, showing 
a, a determination to push harder at, at integrating and allowing market access and, and cooperation amongst regulation, uh, amongst regulators and national economies. Uh, pushing for this, even though the US is pushing in the wrong direction. Inevitably, the w there is a question of what you do in relation to the US. And I think the answer is stay out of the way as much as possible <laughs> and, a and keep a, a push with others more sensible in keeping the world open as much as you can. I know uh, the temptation uh, when, when, when a fight develops is to join those on one side and start fighting the other side. I think somehow we have to uh, find a way of not doing that. How, it, how to do it, how to not do that is difficult, but that's, I think, where the ambition has to be. I'll ask a question from somebody that doesn't understand economics very well, and thank you for presenting us with a story that um, is clear, I think, to the non-economists of us in the audience. I'm just interested what brought you to um, what is essentially an historical perspective, um, rather than, I mean, as I understand macroeconomics, it's very much writing papers about the present and being deeply concerned um, with the the, the ways of understanding the present, but it's unusual, is it not, for a macroeconomist to go back and look at these big picture historical stories, or perhaps have I just not understood that? No, no, it's just central. And, and uh, you can learn from history. Uh, I think that some of the very great mistakes that have been made in the European Union about uh, the, the European Monetary Union uh, have been caused by not understanding the history of a story like this. And uh, the part of what pushed me back into uh, this understanding about how Australia learned was a story about a country that was enmeshed in a world that wasn't learning, learning how to understand how to do things better. And I think by watching a country learn to do that, you can learn something about what you need to do in Europe at the moment, and to answer Peter's question, in the world at the moment about trade. I think history illuminates. Thanks. Thank you Chandra. very much, David. I enjoyed your lecture a lot. I want to ask two simple questions because as a migrant, I'm trying to understand Australian contribution to macroeconomics and trade policy. The first question relates to the vertical axis of the Sun diagram you showed here. You call it cost ratio. Yep. In fact, the underlying idea there was the relative price between tradable and non-tradable prices. Yes. And that idea, according to my reading, when I used this diagram in teaching, uh, when I tried to see the history of the diagram, the idea uh, between it, the tradable, non-tradable difference, 
uh, was introduced by Ronald Wilson yes. in his work. Yes. Am I correct? Absolutely correct. That's the a, that's second a, question. This, my lecture was, if anything, longer than it should have been. This yeah. is this is another important part of the story which I didn't have time to go into. Yeah. But Ro the, these wonderful two doctorates that he wrote, one in Oxford and one in Chicago, were yeah. about that understanding. Yeah. And as Chandra says, when you devalue the currency, what you do is encourage people who are exporting minerals producers, mm -hmm. you encourage people who are um, competing with imports, mm -hmm. uh, domestic, let, let me say car production, no longer there, mm -hmm. uh, at the expense of uh, those domestically producing um, non-tradable banking services, caricature haircuts, when you devalue the currency, it's more valuable to be moving in the direction of, of, of sending exports and competing with imports. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah. But to go to your migration story, yeah. that's also part of this, this picture. Yeah. The uh, understanding that, that um, the other, that the Brigden report people had right back in the 1920s that you, you could use protectionism as a way of uh, encouraging immigrants has given way to the idea of economic growth and policies that stimulate that being how it is that you make the country attractive for immigrants and bring in whatever immigrants you want and need takes us right immediately into uh, contentious discussion about immigration. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to go there. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah. But it's a central part of the story. Yeah. My second question relates to the use of these ideas developed by the great economists, uh, which are some in sum up in this diagram by uh, Son, and the link between that and the implementation of the idea, which is Hawke-Keating reform. When I teach my student, I said that this diagram and the basic idea was popularized by one great Australian a new economist, who is Max Gordon, right? I mean, this paper, which was hidden somewhere, was included in a book by, uh, edited by Absolutely Heinz right. and Max Gordon. Yes. Therefore, I think his intermediate role is important it's to mention in this story. Thank you. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and uh, he, he published an autobiography just a few months ago, which, which uh, in a wonderfully modest way, explains the extraordinary role he played, both in making these ideas uh, available, but in also leading that understanding that led to the Hawke-Keating uh, reforms. And uh, this, this story could run and run into a, a, a the book of, that I'm aiming to write about this. But, but, but uh, just to not run and run, but just to add that I think that the role that Roscano played in implementing these ideas was, has also been fundamental. Max Corden, uh, the extraordinarily perceptive analyst of policy questions sitting in a university, and Ross, the implementer, taking these ideas and helping make a place for them in the reform, in the policy process. 
the 1980s. Those two are a big part of this, of this picture. No. I think it's you. Yeah, go for it. Um, OK, so what I was really interested in is what was clearly a, a big feature of this was the international exchange of ideas and the Change. way it meant that yes. experience from the far ends of the universe were also poured into the discussion. Uh, I'd be interested in your comments in terms of what it was like going through the records from that era and looking at the way intellectual exchange was happening compared to today with the whole digital world and all that it's sort of thing. a very interesting question. Uh, one little, two little vignettes. Uh, another part of this story was a, a, a student of Keynes who came to work for Giblin and Copeland in Melbourne in 1936, Brian Redaway, who taught me when I first arrived in Cambridge. And he described how just a few months before he arrived, airmail began. And, uh, <coughs> and, and I'd always done mental arithmetic about how difficult it must have been beforehand. What I've discovered looking at these papers is the interaction with, between Keynes and the Australians began much earlier than, than partly, uh, centrally because of the connection with Giblin. But Copeland, uh, one of my star players, a, a very noisy, active, always-in-everything person, uh, wrote up an account of what had happened in Australia in 1930 at the beginning of the Depression and sent, and, and sent a message to Keynes saying, would you like this for the Economic Journal in August, and the, uh, in July. And back comes a telegram from Keynes saying, very interested in article, letter follows and the letter arrives three or four weeks later and then Kip, uh, Copeland um, writes to Keynes in, in October saying uh, I am sending the 7th of October on, I am sending it on the 14th it should be in time for you uh, on, on the it's going via the Karachi email, whatever that meant. In, in, and it should be with you by the 10th of, of November. And here we are, 14th of October. That, there's a bit of airmail in that and still... And, and a message back from Keynes at Christmas time. Sorry, your uh, assumption was wrong. It took another week. But nevertheless, I managed to get it into the journal in time. Now, look, we would have done all that in about 24 hours. Uh, so it's not just that international exchange was, was uh, more difficult. I think it's that life was slower then. Everybody did everything more slowly. There are, uh, but international discussion was much, much harder. Uh, and, and this was still evident when I was a student in the 70s in Melbourne how much less well-connected the world it was then than, than it is now. Much harder. I, so, what, what do we all know? Uh, I'm, I'm conscious that there's a slight hum going on. Um, and so I'm standing back. That's gone away again. Um, 
getting to know someone is important, but once you know them, you can do quite a lot of the rest by Skype. Uh, but getting to know people is still fundamental. And so the combination, they took it slowly by email and telegram after they got to know each other. We can do it more quickly, but getting to know people is still central. So what are their feelings when the Labor government wants to take greater control of the economy through such things as the nationalisation of banks and the development of industries? How, how do they reconcile that? Uh, I'm not the person... I don't know a good... I'll do my best from what I know. I don't think they were... Uh, no, go one stage backwards. It was a great shame that I think that Chifley um, went for bank nationalisation when he could have achieved what he wanted to achieve without it and probably stayed in office as, as a result. And he was advised by, I, I think, Coombs and others that the kinds of developments that they'd already um, achieved in policy making could be carried forward. Um, but there's, a, there's an intriguing story in Australian um, political and economic history of the referendum in 1944 in which the attempt to carry all these powers forward failed. But I think the, the general ambition of all of those who worked with, with worked, these people worked during the war, they were building the post-war a mixed economy uh, in a way that they... It's taken me a long time to get to the, this way of answering your question. Uh, they saw before the war almost no way of managing the economy in the face of these huge external shocks. After the war, they believed that they had put in place the mechanisms for managing the economy. And the whole process of post-war reconstruction that... Chifley and then Deadman uh, organised was to bring the management of the mixed economy forward. So, and, and I think that uh, the really interesting theory, is a story about the Menzies regime, is that quite a large amount of what had been achieved wasn't pushed back again. So this is a decisive move to a different kind of economy both in the macro that I'm talking about, but also in industry policy um, and, and, and other bits of, 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 of the social welfare that advanced Western economies, I'm thinking Britain, but also Europe, began to put in place after the Second War. I think the economists were in favour of doing that. Thank you very much. I, I think we've come to the end of our time in here this evening, but please do feel free to continue the conversation with us outside yeah, with some refreshments. 
And may I recommend to you our next 2018 fellowship lecture on the 12th of July, when Professor Dillian Russell examines the British romantic writer, Charles Lamb, and his impact on Australian readers and readership. So quite a different topic to tonight, but it will be wonderful just the same. Until then, please join me again in thanking Professor David Vines. Thank you.